Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hello everyone, I apologize, this episode was delayed, it's been a very hectic couple of weeks. This is episode 2 of my new series, Hashtag Black Lives Matter, Civil War, Rights, and Strife. If you are a new listener, I hope you go back and listen to episode 1 after this. This series will focus on stories surrounding structural racism and civil rights in Kansas City and it may include some strong language. Also, I need to take it a moment and explain my use of terminology. I'll be using the terms white and black in these episodes because these stories focus on the structural racism faced by black Americans. This does not mean that black folks are the only ones to experience racism in KC, or anywhere for that matter. And while we're on the subject, allow me to explain or uh, define structural slash institutional slash systematic racism. Um, I use them interchangeably. It's pretty much what it sounds like. It's a form of racism that is so deeply embedded into our everyday lives and society as a whole that we, white Americans, often don't even know that it's there. Um, The not knowing it's their part is known as white privilege. Now, I chose to focus on these topics um, at this time because of our socio-political climate. However, I always knew that I would eventually tackle these topics. I just didn't realize it would be quite so soon in the podcast's history. To be clear, and so that nobody thinks that this is ironic, because in other circumstances I would make this an ironic title, but this is not ironic. I believe that black lives also matter not matter more, matter as much as others, and I support the Black Lives Matter movement. I am not affiliated with any official or unofficial Black Lives Matter organizations. I just felt that this was the time for these stories to be told and be accessible to a hopefully wider audience. My goal for this series is to uplift voices of color and their stories and to, hopefully, help fellow white listeners come to a deeper understanding of the black experience within our city and gain empathy for them. It's time, I believe, for Americans, especially in this case Kansas Cityans, to stop ignoring stories like these, um, to acknowledge their truths and the influence that they still possess within our cities. It's only then that we can begin to properly address issues that we face today, come together to build our city to be better and be better humans in general. I hope that makes sense to everyone. All right, so some of these stories suck. They really, really suck. As in, how the hell do humans get away with legally and morally treating other humans like this? But that's why these stories need to be told, because as terrible as they are, it's our history. Not all of them will be terrible, Some of today's stories involve triumph, but, you know, it's triumph over racism and segregation, so there's still an element of suckiness there. 
Additionally, um, I want to let everyone know that for this series only, interviews um, that would usually only be available for my patrons will be available to everyone. I had one scheduled. It fell through. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to reconnect with her or not. Um, but I do have an episode from February that I will release later, and I'll tell you more about that uh, probably in the next episode. If you were an activist in the 50s or 70s here in KC, um, sorry, 50s to 70s here in KC, and you would like to tell your story, or if you know someone else who was and think they might be interested, please contact me. I would love to host you and help you share your story. My email is homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. You can also message me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or through my website, which is homegrownkc.wordpress.com. All right, so all of that said, um, today's stories will focus mainly on the civil rights in Kansas City, um, and but it will contain a couple of stories of racially motivated violence. So we're going to start in 1952. Um, we had this major civil rights case in Kansas City in 1952. So before I even started researching this topic, is civil rights um, in general, I came across a few things that mentioned, it was like a super brief sentence um, and all that stood out to me really was Swope Park Pool and Segregated. I was like, okay, that's something to keep in mind for the future. But then when I did start researching that, I found Thurgood Marshall. And I was like, ding, ding, it's story time. This is awesome. Thurgood Marshall was in Kansas City. That is so cool. I did not know that. So I hope that everybody else knows who Thurgood Marshall is. Um, if not, I'm going to talk about him in just a moment. So he is most well known for the Brown versus Board of Education case, um, which I discussed briefly in the last episode. Um, that's the case that in America said separate is equal. Sorry, wait, <laughs> I totally said that wrong. That's the case that said separate but equal is not equal. There we go. Um, and so the court, the Supreme Court, ordered the desegregation of schools in America. Now, Marshall was a lawyer for the NAACP, and he actually argued several cases for them. So Brown versus Board of Education is just one of them, one of the most well-known ones. This case that I'm about to talk to you today took place two years before that. Okay, so they're good. First of all, I really love his name. I'm not sure why, I just, I love the sort of old-timey feel sound of it. He was born July 2nd in 1908 to Norma and William Marshall. He went to Lincoln U University, which is a historically black college and university in Oxford, Pennsylvania, and graduated, graduated, sorry, um, cum laude, and then attended and received his law degree from Howard University, which is another HBCU, historically black college and university, and he graduated magnum cum laude. This is all in the early 1930s. He opened his own practice in his hometown of Baltimore, and that's when he started working for NAACP, like right out the gate. He won his first major civil rights case in 1935. It was Murray versus Pearson, 
So that dealt with equal access to the University of Maryland's law school. He became the first director counsel of NAACP's Legal Defense Fund in 1940. Also in 1940, he won his first Supreme Court case. Um, by the end of his, his career, he won 29 Supreme Court cases. Now that I think about it, I don't know how many he lost, if he lost any. Uh, my research um, into him wasn't super deep because he's not from Kansas City. Um, and all of the information I found out about his life is actually from this website that's dedicated to him. They have a timeline um, that lists major events. And I don't recall seeing lost Supreme Court case. But, you know, this was the highlights. You're not going to include that in the highlights. So, that may be a possibility. I don't know if you are like, Thurgood Marshall is my boy. Then, you know, let the rest of us know. Anyways, so he was appointed circuit judge in 1961. And then he became the U.S. Solicitor General in 1965. And finally, he was the first black judge on the U.S. Supreme Court in 1967. And he held this position until he retired in 91. Remember, if you become a Supreme Court judge, you hold that position for life. Either you retire or you die. He retired. Uh, he did die two years later in 93 from heart failure. But the first black judge on the U.S. Supreme case, uh, Court, that's a big deal. Man's basically a badass. Back to our story in Kansas City. Okay. So it's the summer of 1951, and in the Midwest, that means it's hot as hell. And so humid, you could basically swim through the air. So unless you have really good air conditioning, which I'm thinking not very many people had in the 1950s, especially if you're black, you are miserable, and you spend as much time as you can in the water. Uh, so at this time, the city has three swimming pools. One is for blacks only, and two are for whites only. The blacks only pool is located in Parade Park, which is between Truman and 18th. It had been built in 1939, and cost a total of $60,000 to build, and it, quote, lacked the sand beach and concession stand. Black swimmers had no extra pools for wading and diving, end quote. So, basically it's just a super basic pool, right? The whites-only pool is located at Swope Park and at Truman and Benton Boulevard. I don't have a description for the second, but the Swope Park pool is super nice. It's got a concession stand, a diving board, and a waving, wading pool for the kitties. The main pool itself is 105 by 60 feet, which is massive. I don't know how big an Olympic pool is. Maybe it's bigger. God, I hope not, because that sounds like an Olympic-sized pool. It sounds huge. It also had a shelter and changing rooms that could hold 3,000 people. According to one source, it was built in 42 for $534,000, and another source said that it was built by the WPA, which is a, of course, long-time listeners will hopefully recognize this, is a um, New Deal program. I've talked about it a lot in my previous series on Pendergast. Anyways, you should listen to those Pendergast episodes, guys. I love Pendergast. So one source said 42, the other one said WPA built it in 1941 for 400000 Either way, it's way newer and way nicer. Oh my god, so much nicer than the blacks-only pool. And the entrance fee 
at the Swope Parks pool is only 40 cents. Can you guys imagine that? Man, even when I was a kid, it was like 10 bucks to get into the swimming pool. And our local swimming pool was like the black swimming pool. It was super basic, super tiny. It had no diving board that I, well, I'll take, take that back. It probably had one diving board. It had tiny changing rooms. It didn't have a waiting pool. Like, God, that just, that's like going back in time and going to the movies for a nickel. That would be amazing. Anyways, focus, Laura, focus. We're talking about Swole Park Pool, not the movies. Okay, so it's June 20th, 1951. Some black Kansas Cityans, one source said three, and another said six men and women. Um, so we'll say three to six. Tried to buy a ticket for the Swope Park Pool. They're denied, of course. It's 1950s. We have segregation. So the NAACP filed a suit against the city on August 2nd, 1951. I'm not sure why there was like three months. Well, okay. End of July to beginning of August. One month. But regardless, I don't know why there was a delay there. Um... This case was named Williams versus Kansas City, and it was named after one of the um, folks who had tried to buy the ticket and was on the case, um, Esther Williams. She was a dietitian at Casey General Hospital Number 2. So, the NAACP brings in a star player, Thurgood Marshall, woo, woo, and the trial took place on June 15th in 1952. Again, I don't know why there's a delay. It's like a year later. They had one day of arguments at the federal courthouse. You know what? I'll take that back. I'm not surprised that there's a delay um, from peripheral experience, because not me personally, but I know folks who have tried to go to court for things that I won't get into, and um, it's delayed, it's delayed, it's delayed. So, okay, a year delay makes sense. Anyways, so they have one day of arguments at the federal courthouse here in Kansas City, and then Judge Albert Ridge said, it's not equal. You either need to build a blacks-only pool that is just as nice, or you need to let the blacks use the Swope Park pool. So guess what? The city closes the pool. Um, I don't know if it's in protest or if some other reason. kind of feel like it's in protest. Um, but it reopened two years later to all Kansas Cityans, black and white, on, in June 1954. Yay! However, the shelters in Swope Park are still segregated, of course. There were eight at the time. And I'm actually unclear on how many we have today. I was looking on their website, and I only counted eight. Like, there were eight um, photos and descriptions. But one of them was labeled shelter number 10, so maybe we have 10? I don't know. Um, in 1951, there's only eight. And the black Kansas Cityans were only allowed to use two of them, shelter number five and shelter number eight. Yet after the pool, even after the pool was desegregated in 54, the shelters were still segregated. So like on the one hand, I get it. Not, not that I get it. Um, let me try this again. Hmm. F from the perspective at the time, I kind of get it. You are unhappy that you were ordered to desegregate your pool. So you do the bare minimum, and you desegregate the pool. And on the other hand, like, wouldn't it just make more sense to do it all at once? Maybe I think that's just, you know, modern perspective invading my historical uh, research there. <sighs> then again, there's a lot of assholes that live around back then and today. Anyways, moving on. 
So we're going to skip ahead to the 60s now. Um, this was super cool. Did not know. Would never have known, I think, unless I had specifically researched this. Martin Luther King Jr. came to Kansas City. Like, how many of y'all knew that? Seriously, I had no idea. I... And part of this is the way that the civil rights movement is taught in schools. First of all, it's taught that there was like, or the, the way that it's taught, it make it causes you to think, okay? Not that it's specifically taught this way, but it, it gives the impression that there was no such thing as the civil rights movement until Dr. King. It had been going on for so long before that, guys. He's just the one that brought all these people together, and he was a leader and a a very powerful voice for the movement, but he didn't start the movement. And it also makes it sound like he was, he visited like three cities. Like that's all they ever talk about, right? Is Birmingham, DC, and then Memphis. And so you're like, okay, he, you know, he stayed below the Mason Dixon line. He, he didn't really travel very much. Nah, he traveled so much and he came to Kansas City. All right. So Getting back on track now. He came to Kansas City. Um, one source said in 62, another said 67, and finally a third said 68. So I'm not sure if that means that he actually came three times, which would be wicked awesome, or if uh, he came once and the dates got mixed up, or maybe he came twice and in 62, and then in 67 or 68 and that date got mixed up. I'm just going to go ahead and say he came three times, because that's awesome. I like that. Anyways. Okay, so he was shot and killed. Well, he was shot in his in his hotel room in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't think that's a spoiler alert. We all know that. And he died at the hospital afterwards. Um, but we'll say he was shot and killed in Memphis April 4th, 1968. Okay. Immediately after his assassination... Hundreds of cities across America erupt in protests. That's just like today, guys. It's really not shocking to us anymore. Maybe at the time it was shocking. But we should, we should, in light of the modern Black, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, sorry, I mind blinked for a minute. We should realize that this is not shocking. A lot of them are peaceful. Some are are very violent. Again, just like today. And we had protests, also a bit violent, here in Kansas City following MLK's death. So, the protests here in KC started on Tuesday, April 9th. This is five days after he died. Here's what happened. Memorial services were planned for the 9th here in the city. And Okay, so uh, a few years earlier, when JFK, the president, was assassinated, schools were closed so that students could attend those memorial services, right? Well, the school boards had decided to keep the schools open, so none of these students would be allowed to go to the memorials um, planned for MLK's death. And that pissed them off. So that morning, some two to three hundred teenage black Kansas Cityans, marched on City Hall demanding that the schools be closed in honor of his death. This was a long march. It's not like they went straight to City Hall, which, I don't know, I kind of like it. It makes it a little bit more interesting. So they 
had a walkout at Lincoln High and Manual High School. And there was a demonstration held at Central High School. And then the students from that demonstration marched to uh, Central Junior High School. And that's where the violence first started. So students, uh, according to this source, um, one in particular I'm thinking of, maybe a couple of others mentioned, that students began breaking car windows and throwing bricks and rocks. And then the police showed up and they used tear gas and mace to try to disperse them. But the students got past them. They had like a little barricade set up. They got past them and marched to Paseo High. And so then there's more destruction when they get to Paseo High. Um, afterwards, they start marching again. They're going down 31st. And the police have set up a more formal barricade at 31st and Truce with um, cops in riot gear and police dogs. So the kids, um, before they get to 31st and Truce, they end up kind of detouring or stopping on the way at Parade Park. And the mayor met them there. And he convinced them to join him. And then they all went to City Hall together. So I'm like, right on, Mayor. Just, I appreciate that you're taking the time to go and talk to the the kids. And then you're like, I'm going to partner with you. That's awesome. Um, I have a quote here. Some youths pelted police with rocks as they headed for City Hall. Traffic on I-70 froze as the demonstrators flooded the lanes quote, like a screaming black river, end quote. Now, Missouri Governor Warren E. Hearns received a call. I'm I'm guessing Mayor Davis called him. Um, But then again, since he was with the protesters, maybe not, maybe it was somebody else from City Hall. The governor, governor got a call, and he hears what's going down in Kansas City, and he freaked. His reaction is totally overblown. I don't know. Maybe he was like, I've already seen all these other violent protests going on in other cities for a few days. I need to shut this down as soon as I can. I don't know what his thought was. But he ordered the Missouri National Guard and the State Highway Patrol into the city. There's a wide variety of numbers for cops in the city at the time. Let's just go with a lot. Sumner High School held the three memorial services. They had so many people who planned to come to these services that they had to break it up into groups of three. Um, on the 9th, and there ended up being more than 1,200 attendees. Now, that night, that's when the protests got really, really violent, more than just, you know, a few bricks being thrown. Quote, within two days, a three-block-wide section of town running down Prospect Avenue lay in ruins, end quote. So the first night, April 9th, 30 people are injured, and 140 people were arrested, 43 of them were released that same night. They were all between the ages of 18 and 25. The next night, Wednesday, the 18th, um, 10th, sorry, 18 people are injured, five are killed, and a ton more people are arrested. 75 people were released that night. Um, several of the articles I looked at also reported a sniper out on the streets. And I'll be honest, from these old articles, it wasn't clear, but I think the sniper was on the side of the protesters. That's kind of the impression that I got from these articles. There's also several fires. Thursday night, two more people are injured. Over the course of these three days, 
Almost 200 people were arrested, uh, arrested, excuse me. At least 50 were injured and five were killed. CaseyHistory.org says that 300 mostly young black men were arrested and six people were killed. Um, the police arrested so many people that they set up holding centers at a few local churches because they couldn't fit everyone into City Hall. And if you pled guilty, they released you immediately and only charged you a $25 fine. So that's why I said that so-and-so got released that night. Also, on April 9th, um, I found an article that stated that police tear-gassed a group of high school students who had a dance in the basement of Holy Name Church at 2800 East 23rd Street. So, man, April 9th was rough for us. That was not a good day. In order to assuage citizens, Mayor Davis ordered the creation of a Commission on Civil Disobedience to look into the source of the protests and riots, as if it's not obvious. Um, the commission created a report in August of 68, and they had several pages of recommendations um, to improve police relations with black citizens. I read through it. This was a lot of suggestions. Some of these were like, hire more police, hire more black police, pay them better. Um, and then there was stuff like, Expand Votec programs, improve public transport, have a more regular trash pickup, free daycare for civil mom, uh, single moms, um, continue to integrate schools. Uh, if you listened to my previous episode, you will remember that I talked about that very, very briefly. Maybe it's sober if you don't remember. I hope you remember. Anyways, I had a quote that said this. Even as late as 1970, something like 90% of the schools east of Troost were still segregated. So, here we go, you know, late 60s, and this report is saying, hey, you know what would help relations? Integrate schools. I also found a article that detailed the cost of damages and lost wages that the city sustained um, during these three nights of rioting. It was damned expensive. Quote, the largest expense figure of the report was $829,006 in damages to buildings, inventories, motor cars, and looting. End quote. Alright, that is actually the end of today's episode. I'm sorry, I feel like that was a little bit abrupt. Before we go, let's talk about sources. So, again, I used G.S. Griffin's Racism in Kansas City, A Short History. So great. I really recommend this book. And on his section here in the Civil Rights, he actually has several more stories about um, civil rights triumphs in Kansas City. Uh, for example, there was one in there that I didn't include today about a uh, protest in department stores. Um, stuff like that. It's really great. I also had some articles from the vertical files of the Black Archives of Mid-America. That's where I found a lot of these uh, newspaper articles that I referenced. This archive is such a wonderful resource on Black history in Kansas City. You guys have got to go visit it. They are open right now from 10 to 4 Monday through Friday. I also found this super cool website I'm going to link you to on my website called the African American Heritage Trail of Kansas City. It's got uh, photos of people and places related to black history in Kansas City. And, of course, each photo has a summary of its uh, 
historical significance. Um, as always, I use kchistory.org. I basically has everything. Um, additional sources. I have a short list of additional sources that I will include if you want to understand systematic racism in general. Um, there's a, a good short video on YouTube. It's animated. I'll include a link for that. I also recommend that you watch The 13th on Netflix. Uh, it's got a lot of information. It might be overwhelming at first. You probably have to watch it more than once. I did. But it's really, really great. Uh, it just it puts everything together. Uh, Netflix and Hulu both actually have several documentaries um, that deal with police brutality and or structural racism in America. I also recommend that you read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo and read the articles of the 1619 Project by the New York Times. It is a series of well-written and interesting articles about, quote, different aspects of contemporary American life that have their roots in slavery and its aftermath, a.k.a. structural racism. You do have to create an account to read these articles, and it will ask you to buy a subscription, but just say no, stick with the free version, and then you can access the entire 1619 Project. If you know of other books or documentaries to help us white Americans understand structural racism in America, then please send me a message and I will include your suggestions. Uh, make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. I am Homegrown KC on all of these platforms. You can also visit my website for additional information. It's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. I know I'm slightly behind on that. Um, I am working on adding more pages to that site, guys. If you have any additional questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, please email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. I know that financially it's tough right now. So if you want to support the show financially, you can do so by subscribing to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. It's $5 a month. You'll be charged the day that you sign up and then the first on the day of every month afterwards. Everything that you give goes back into the show. You will receive a shout-out here on the show, so let me take a moment to do that. Um, thank you, Bjorn, Mike, and Linda, for your support. You guys are awesome. Uh, you'll also receive access to exclusive interviews with other historians in the city. Um, the newest Patreon episode is up. It is in honor of October Spooky Month. I interviewed a paranormal investigator and she talks about some of the investigations she's done in, here in Kansas City. It's very fascinating. Um, you can also, if you don't want to subscribe to the show, you can provide a one-time donation if you aren't so, so inclined at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. And if you can't financially support the show, I understand. Um, but you can still support me by telling your friends and family about the show strap them to a chair, make them listen, you know, whatever it takes to get the job done. Just kidding. Don't strap anyone to a chair. You'll probably get in a lot of trouble for that. Could definitely be a crime under certain circumstances. Anyways, um, also please give me a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you listen. A very special thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo. 
to the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show, to local libraries and the Black Archives of Mid-America, which enabled me to gather all of my research, and finally, a very special thank you to my friends Takia and fellow historian Josh for being my readers on these episodes. Be kind to one another, be safe, wear a mask, and trust science. Thanks for listening. Seem to get you off my mind. Battle of my nerves.